Thanks for listening to The Murder of My Family. But before you go any further, stop. I want to tell you about the amazing new immersive podcast app, Bodacast, that will allow you to experience this podcast and others in a way that you haven't been able to until now. Bodacast will provide you a deeper version of the show and allow you to view photos of the people and places we're talking about in this episode. You'll also get links for articles about the case. When you experience a podcast on Bodacast, you not only will be listening to your favorite podcast, but you'll be getting stories that come alive with supplemental digital content that allows you to have everything being discussed in the episode at your fingertips. If you're like me, after you listen to a podcast, you search for more details or photos of the people and events discussed in the episode. With Vodacast, it's all right there for you. So try Vodacast out today. Click the link in my show notes to learn more about Vodacast or download the app today in the App Store and change the way you experience podcasts forever. That's Vodacast. V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, DNA ID, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, Riddle Me That, and All Things Crime. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 87 of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of a young mother who was murdered in a shocking act of domestic violence. You'll hear how her mother and sister fought desperately and heroically to save her life, but sadly, they weren't able to. The story will move you as we explore both the best and the worst in people. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder of My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support this show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Kimberly Larson, or Kim, as most people called her, was the youngest of five children, and she was adored by her family and friends. People talk about her spirit and that she could light up a room with her smile. She was a happy person. And when she met a man named Evan Bashir in early 2017, sparks between the pair flew. The relationship quickly escalated, and the couple moved in together in Meridian, Idaho. After six months of living together, a son named Donovan arrived. 
came adored her young son, and there was nothing she wouldn't do for him. The relationship between Kim and Evan seemed solid to outsiders. He was supportive and helpful during Kim's delivery, and seemed to be a good father as well as a dutiful partner, changing diapers and taking Donovan for walks on a regular basis. But the amount of drinking Evan liked to do did worry Kim's mother, Juliana, who only wanted the best for her daughter. But other than that, things seemed good for the young family, and it should have been the beginning of great times for them. Instead, a violent tragedy would strike, ending Kim's life, and the person who was responsible should have been someone she could trust. Around March 22, 2018, 22-year-old Kim reached out to her family about Evan, and she admitted that he had been both verbally and physically abusive to her recently, after he had come home one night. Evan had choked her, and that was the absolute last straw for Kim. Kim's family wanted to quickly help, and they encouraged her to leave right away, so she did. She moved out of the home she lived in with Evan, and moved to Nampa, taking her young son Donovan to stay with her sister Chelsea and her family. Evan didn't take the breakup lately, but no one could have predicted what he would do. Just days later, on the morning of March 27, 2018, Kim was at Chelsea's home along with Chelsea, their mother Juliana, little Donovan, and Chelsea's two daughters. Kim's ex-boyfriend, 29-year-old Evan Bashir, showed up unannounced. At around 8 a.m., he rang the doorbell, but when Chelsea answered the door, no one was there. She did see Evan's SUV, a Dodge Durango, parked down the street and she got a gut feeling that something wasn't right. She raced towards the back of her home to make sure the back sliding glass door was locked, and she shoved the bar into the frame to lock it, just as Evan was arriving at the back door, screaming. He wanted to see Kim and their three-month-old son, but Chelsea refused to let him in. Unfortunately, that didn't stop Evan. He broke the glass door and smashed his way into the home. That's when he violently attacked Chelsea with a machete. Hearing the commotion, Juliana ran out to try and stop Evan, and she too was attacked. He then made his way to Kim. Chelsea grabbed her husband's shotgun in an effort to stop Evan, but her hand was so badly wounded that she couldn't use it and decided to make a run for it out of the house to get help. But she had trouble turning the lock on the door to open it, but eventually was able to open it and ran screaming to the neighbor's house for help. A neighbor yelled into Evan, warning him to leave the woman alone, and that the police were on their way. Despite being safely outside, Chelsea ran back into the home. She wanted to try and protect her family. Meanwhile, the protective grandmother, Juliana, although severely wounded from machete blows, had somehow managed to grab Donovan and keep him safe, barricading themselves in a room. Chelsea's children were able to escape with her help through a bedroom window, and they made it safely to a neighbor's house. By this point, Evan had focused his rage on Kim, and had wielded his machete and a knife against her. Juliana heard Kim, her youngest child, call for help and say, I can't breathe, but she couldn't get up to help due to her injuries. She knew that Kim must have been stabbed in the lung, and agonized at hearing her youngest child being attacked just feet away, powerless to do anything about it. Police got to the scene quickly, but responding officers were unable to disarm or calm Evan down, and one officer had to fire shots at him. Evan was killed from multiple gunshot wounds from the officer's firearm. Chelsea and Juliana were badly injured, but the officers applied tourniquets to help stop the bleeding, which doctors later said saved the two women. Tragically, the focus of Evan's rage, Kim, was too badly injured to be saved and passed away before she could be taken to a hospital. Her sister and mother, still in shock, sat helplessly nearby. All three children in the home managed to make it out without injuries but what they endured and witnessed undoubtedly had to be beyond traumatic. In the aftermath of the brutal attack, both Chelsea and Juliana endured painful recoveries. Their wounds would heal, but the pain they endured, losing their sister and daughter in such a shocking and brutal way, that will always be there.
They'll never know why the man who supposedly loved Kim and was the father of her child did the unthinkable and took her life. Kim's friends and family remember her as a free spirit, adventurous, gentle, kind-hearted, and above all, loving mother. Kim's oldest sister, Jade, is now raising Donovan, and he's been described as happy-go-lucky and thriving. A GoFundMe campaign was set up to help with the expense of raising Donovan, and you can donate to it by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Help the Larsons Heal. When Kim died in March of 2018, she was the 10th fatal domestic violence victim in the state of Idaho that year. Kim's sister Chelsea and her mom Juliana want to help prevent this situation from happening to anyone else, and they'd like to educate people and provide resources. They now raise awareness about domestic violence and organizations like the Women's and Children's Alliance, Faces of Hope Victim Center, and Nampa Justice Center. Each year, they hold Kim Fest, or the Know Your Mind Festival, intended as a celebration of Kim's life that has grown into a place to find resources in the community and heal with other people impacted by domestic violence. There are many warning signs and indicators that a domestic violence assault might eventually turn into a fatality. Strangulation is the biggest indicator of future fatal domestic violence. Another common factor in most cases of fatal domestic violence is a recent breakup between the victim and the offender. An offender has a higher chance of committing fatal domestic violence if they have substance or excessive alcohol use in their background. Evan Bashir had all of these risk factors in his history. And there's no doubt there are other Evans out there. If you or someone you know is in danger due to domestic violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE. I sat down with Kim's mom, Juliana, and her sister, Chelsea, to discuss the tragic events that took Kim from them. On one hand, their story is very hard to listen to. It's terrifying and sad. On the other hand, their account of that horrible day reveals true courage and bravery and proves that this family battled valiantly to protect themselves and each other. In fact, this is one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had with someone, and I was truly moved, and I think you will be too. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, spring is here, and for many people, this is the time when we want to get out and get active. But for some of us, that's easier said than done, because often, things that have been weighing on us don't magically go away with the change of seasons. But the good news is, there is help, and that help is called BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, then BetterHelp Online Counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from trauma, depression, and anger issues, to LBGT matters, grief, stress, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential, and while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P dot com slash family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. This episode is sponsored by Every Plate, America's Best Value Meal Kit. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's Best Value Meal Kit. Every Plate makes home cooking easy and affordable as a much cheaper alternative to takeout, but just as delicious. Think of it this way. One meal from Every Plate is the same price as one cup of coffee. And best of all, it's delivered to your door hassle-free. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Let's face it, there's a lot of meal kit services out there to choose from, but with every plate, you'll get great meals delivered to your door fresh and at a price that's more affordable than the competition. I just tried the lemon garlic chicken and it was delicious. Now listeners of the Murder My Family can try every plate for just $1.99 per meal. 
plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code FAMILY199. Once again, go to everyplate.com and enter promo code FAMILY199 to try every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes. Thank you both for joining us today on the Murder of My Family to, to discuss Kimberly's case with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, this is the first time that I've had two, we'll get two different insights we're hearing, for listeners, we're hearing from Julie and Chelsea. Uh, of course, Julie is Kim's mom and Chelsea is Kim's sister. So, you know, again, I thank you for coming on to, to share her story with us. Yeah, this this episode is also different, not just because there's two people I'm talking with, but because you're sort of part of the story. You're not just the family of a murder victim, but you were both survivors of the violence that took Kim's life. And I want to offer my condolences to you both for, for losing Kim. But I also wanted to thank you for your courage and fighting and surviving and being here to speak on her behalf. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And we appreciate you having us. We really do. Uh, it's, it's my pleasure. And We'll get into the, the heartbreaking and troubling details of this case. But before we do, can you talk a little bit about Kim and tell us about what she was like and what you remember most about her? Well, she was my baby of five children. And so she was the baby of the family. We 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 really babied her all along. But she was just the sweet little light that came into our lives and we just adored her and she grew up with all this love surrounding her and it made her into such a loving person. She really, really was. And she was very kind, very sweet. All of her friends were shattered over her death because she was like the least person that deserved something like that to happen to her. Yeah. We've had, a lot of her friends come forward after her death and reach out to us um, and say, I don't, I know you don't know me and I knew Kim for a brief period, but she was the one who helped me through this, or she was the one who was always nice to me, or she was just that person that lit up the room and um, really made you want to live your life to the fullest. She was so kind and loving. And yeah, that was her, that was her whole spirit. <laughs> So when you hear those kind of stories and people coming up to you out of the blue, that must make you feel really good about what kind of person she was. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely encourages us to keep our movement forward and trying to keep her story alive. Yeah. And what's so tragic about this too, obviously, you know, you both are, are dealing with this. You were victims of this person as well, but you know, in another sense, there are other family members of yours that were, were there that were involved and, her young son Donovan, I, I must be just heartbreaking for a, a little boy like that who, who was what three months old when this happened. Um, yeah. And now the tragedy he's going to grow up not getting to know her. Um, how much is that weighed on you both? Well, it's a very heavy weight knowing that we have to explain to him over the course of his life what happened that his father killed his mother, and. But, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a harsh reality. Um, we're taking it day by day and just trying to do the best we can and get the help we need as we go. Um, but at the same time, he's been our light and our reason for going on because she left us this little boy to take care of. For Definitely. Her. He's he's what most I mean, he's our everyday inspiration. And um, it's where we feel blessed to have him in our lives. Yeah, and the picture I've seen of him online is, is he looks like a little cutie that just probably makes you smile every day when you see him. Yeah, definitely. He looks more and more like her every day. <laughs> oh. And in I think in most murder cases, the victims, um, they're the people that kill them or take their lives, they're not strangers, they're not serial killers. I think most often the victims know their killer. And it's someone close to them. And this was true in Kim's case. And it turns out that the bad guy here 
was Kim, Kim's ex-boyfriend, Evan Bashir. How long had they dated before March 2018? And uh, I, I guess what were your impressions of him and your, and your thoughts of him? Well, they only dated for um, about a year before that happened. And she got pregnant right away and they stayed together and they lived with his parents for a while. And then they got a little trailer and lived on their own for up until three days before the murder. And we took her out of his, their home because he had laid hands on her for the first time. Um, he had be, been becoming increasingly alcoholic and staying away and, and they'd been having issues, but nothing violent until that night. And she, the next day told us, and I think we got her out that weekend and, um, it was just a few days that she was at my house. Um, my mom lived with us at the time, my husband and I, we have a home and, um, she came and stayed with us. And a few days later he showed up. Um, without any warning he hadn't even spoken to her since he left so she had gone to their trailer and and took her stuff uh, with the help of um, her siblings um, family you know came to our house and um, no confrontations or anything it was just you know and she had messaged him or whatever and she didn't hear anything back and then showed up Tuesday morning uh, March 27th 2019 this wasn't something that was ongoing. This happened and she put an end to it immediately, it sounds like, and decided she was going to leave him. Immediately, yeah. And we've learned since then that that's actually the most um, critical time in a relationship that's ending um, that first week or, or few weeks after that. To, it's the most volatile. It's um, the most dangerous for a woman and we didn't know that we had no idea at the time. We weren't aware of that. We've since known that because we sought out that information and maybe it's um, becoming more, more known now. Um, but yeah, that's one right thing away. we'd like to get across to people is that to be really careful during those first couple weeks of a breakup, if it's a volatile situation, if there is violence, um, and, you know, substance abuse and, and in their case, it was new baby and a hard time keeping work and, um, being in those general, just general life stresses, you know, for a young couple that, uh, starting a family and, and it was just too much for him to handle at the time. And, but, but you're right. She got out immediately. She did what she thought was right. We did what we thought was the right thing to do. And it was, we thought we she just, was safe. We just didn't know to be more on guard after that, to be more um, careful or to not, you know, to be more concerned if he sh- showed up unannounced um, to those sort of things that stalking and that um, retribution and, and retaliation is a real thing. And it's very common in domestic violence situations. Yeah. And I mean, as a parent, you know, myself with kids, if I found out something like that was happening to my child, I'd race over there and take them right out too, without thinking about yeah, exactly. anything down the road. I would just be trying to get them out of that situation. So I assume that's what you were doing. Um, we did. And once we had her at our home, we thought she was safe with us. We just had no idea. We just didn't even realize what was going to happen. Yeah. And we found out later that that must have been what he had been plotting that whole weekend because she got out on a Thursday and then it was a Tuesday, I believe that it happened. And that whole time when he wasn't communicating with her, um, I mean, he very meticulously planned out what he would do. Um, at least we, we gathered that from information we Obtained after because the there were no weapons in his home. My my daughter and son who went and took her out of their home searched their trailer and made sure there were no weapons in there, and there wasn't. So all the weapons that he brought or that they found in his car at the time, he had gathered over those few days. And did he have anything in his background uh, as far as any record of domestic de- abuse or um, any kind of intimidation or stalking or anything like that? He 
I believe there was one um, prior report done that was basically just a notation on his record, like that he had nothing in his criminal offenses. But I, I, and I can't really be quoted on that, but I'm pretty sure that he had, because I learned later um, that one of his, through one of his friends, mutual friends, their friends or something that um, he had a history of at least one of his exes being aggressive with or being violent with. And so, but we didn't know that, like we said, she had only known him a year and they got pregnant right away. That was their whole world. You know, that whole time they were together is planning for their new baby and planning for their family and getting, you know, it was all, it was like, it was meant to be. I mean, it was really beautiful what was happening. Like we felt like they were um, truly in love and wanted to be a family and we're kind of taking cues from my husband and I, we were in the process. We had two little girls at the time, three and one who were also in the home at the they time. Um, they were all, they were there among, you know, in that whole year leading up to it, they were at our house a lot. That's why he knew us. He knew our home. He knew that my husband would be at work that day. He knew that us women would probably just be getting up and the kids maybe, you know, just barely waking up and, at eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I mean, it was very meticulously, he knew us inside. And like you said, it's most common when people, with the people you know the best and are closest to, unfortunately. Yeah. And and let's go back to that day, um, March 27th, 2018. Um, everything seems okay. They've been apart for a couple of days. You're all living at your house, Chelsea, what happened? Can you walk us through that day and how things unfolded? Yeah. Um, so I had just woken up. It was maybe 10 till eight in the morning. I mean, I was really just waking up, just sitting down. I think I just opened up my computer and was going through emails or something. And, um, my little girls were still sleeping in, in our bed in the back room. Um, and I heard a knock. No, I heard the doorbell ring. Sorry. And I was like, thought that was weird because we do have a sign over our door now, doorbell saying that please do not ring the doorbell. We have kids sleeping or something like that. Anyways. Um, so, but nobody was there when I answered the door and I looked out the window and I saw that his car was there and it just hit me like, Oh, oh crap. Like for some reason I ran to the back door and right as he was going to open the sliding glass door, I put the, the lock in the door so he couldn't. Um, and he was like, where's Kim? I need to see Kim. And I said, you can't see her or she's, you can talk to her through the glass. I'll go get her, but you're not coming inside, you know, cause I, I could tell something was off, but it didn't hit me. I didn't see any weapons in his hand. He didn't seem like outraged. He just wanted to talk to her. So I was like, yeah, I'll go get her, you know? So I went and woke her up and she was um, just waking up with baby Donovan. And she's like, okay, wait, you know, change his diaper and started doing that. And uh, before she could even get out, um, out the door we heard a crash uh which was evan breaking in through the sliding glass door um and she was in the hallway and i rushed after her and he was already attacking her with a machete um so at that point i i tried to i think pull him off of her or something but as soon as i went to do that i got hit with it um on my head um, I don't remember feeling it. I just remember hearing the thud and thinking, and then just going about <laughs> what I was doing, um, which was trying to derail him from her. And so at that point, I I was in bed asleep, and I heard Chelsea, I believe it was, say, Evan, put down the knife, and that's what woke me up. And I thought to myself oh no I've got to get up and defuse this situation and I jumped out of bed and went to my door and when I opened my door I didn't even see him but I immediately got hit in the head with the machete and it was a really hard hard hit and it like knocked me backwards onto my bed and I sat there for a minute and I thought uh oh you know this is really bad 
and I ran out, out of my room. And at that point, um, Evan and either Chelsea or Kim, I really don't know who was standing in the doorway of Chelsea's room. And I ran over and I grabbed him around the legs. I just wanted to stop him. And that's what I did without even thinking about it. Yeah. So she was holding him by the legs and I'm trying to get the machete out of his hand um, using my own hands because what do you do when you're injured and trying to de-arm, you know, disarm somebody. So I ended up with a, a, a severe injury on my hand. Um, I could have very well lost my right thumb. Luckily it was just the chunk of muscle that came out um, of my hand and some other um, injuries. But as he, you know, as we're tuffling or whatever in, in the doorway and my mom's holding on to him, um, I get free of him and Kim follows me out. I guess I run out to get help. That was my first instinct. Um, I don't particularly know what drove me to think I need to go. I need to go and like get help from a neighbor because I'm, I'm assuming because I didn't have my phone on me. I didn't, you know, I, that would have been a harder thing to do, I guess. So either way I got out, I went to my neighbors and knocked on their door. Nobody answered, but I was like, okay, I'm going to the next neighbor. I went to the neighbor on the opposite side of me. I knocked on their door. Nobody answered. I thought, okay, well, somebody's either heard me or not, but my kids are inside. So I'm going back went back. I didn't even realize how injured I was. Um, I knew that my hand was hurt. Um, I was running around as late neighbors later reported that I, I was seen running, um, from back to back and forth to the neighbors with my arm in the air, or like I was raising my hand kind of, you know, instinctually, I think just holding my hand up anyways. Um, when I come back, Kim and him are on the yard or they're in the front doorway. So she must have run after me and he came after her and he's screaming, where's the baby? Where's Donovan? Where's Donovan? So that's okay. At that point, I was holding on to his leg and he, his legs and he couldn't walk. He couldn't move. So he hit me with the machete on my, he hit my knee and my arm, which made me let go of him when he did that. And I had some pretty severe injuries there. Um, and that's when I heard him say, where's the baby? Where's the baby? Where's Donovan? And I knew that he was looking for that baby to kill. And he ran out the front door. Like Chelsea said, he went after the girls. Well, I, in my mind, thought I know where that baby is. So I dragged myself into the room where the baby was and shut the door and held it shut as with my good leg as hard as I could. There was no way that door was coming open if I could help it. And he was not going to get in there and get that baby. So that's where I ended up the entire rest of the time. Yeah. So that was, as I was running out getting help, she was crawling her way to the door and, and to the room and getting herself in front of the door. Um, and then, and then right. And, you know, as she's doing that, that's when I'm probably coming back and he's saying, where's the baby Where's you know, in the front doorway with Kim, with her, you know, him holding the machete to her head saying, you know, and me saying, please, we don't have to do this. You can have, you, you can see the baby. It's going to be okay. It's, you know, please just drop the weapon, that sort of thing. Um, at that point, um, he was, saw that I was, in you know engaged in whatever and he pulled out another knife and he was like okay then we you want to play too and he stabbed my sister in the face um she survived that and and was running out into the yard and he was i think going to his car maybe because he started in that direction maybe to get the guns that he had in there that we later found he had we don't know exactly and a lot of this is still the timeline is a little bit blurry and a little bit, you know, fuzzy on the course of events. But um, at that point, Kim had kind of circled back and and we noticed, you know, we have to get back into the, the doors open. Let's go back inside. Um, she um, 
So we went inside and shut and locked it and, and went straight into my bedroom. Um, but right when we got into my bedroom, she remember, you know, was just like my baby, those motherly instincts. We both were just like our babies, our babies, we have to get back, you know? Um, and so she, and I was just like, yes, go get your baby. I like, I remember touching her. And at this point she still has this knife in her head. She's still, she's told me I have this thing in my face and I'm just like, I know, like, and I, we're not really like making eye contact. We're just moving through this, you know, this experience. Um, and I said, yeah, go get your baby. And, and then I shut my door and I went straight for my shotgun, which my husband that weekend had just been showing me how to unlock the trigger lock and all that stuff. But I couldn't unlock it because my hand was um, completely yeah, broken. It was useless. It was bleeding everywhere. So um, I ditched that idea and my window was right there. My Okay, and the whole time my babies are sitting there. They're awake at this point, obviously. And we learned later that they heard the whole thing and the, the little one, the three-year-old is helping the one-year-old stay in bed and, you know, protect her and and witnessed a lot of that whole encounter in when I'm trying to get the machete out of his hand and my mom's holding his legs and all stuff. So that's all in our doorway of where my kids are sleeping. Um, so anyways, I noticed the windows there, I open it up. Um, and at that point, my leg, my right leg is completely, um, my knee has been gashed open. Uh, my hand has been gashed open. My head's been gashed open. I noticed myself in the mirror and realized the extent of my injuries and that I hadn't before I was bleeding and my full face was covered. I didn't realize that it, I didn't even feel anything. Um, so I jump out the window with my interest and I run around the, the side of the house um, to try to get help because for some reason, I think that I don't know why. I don't know why. I run around the side of the house to get help from somebody to help me get my kids out of the, the window because I don't think I can do it on my own with my injuries. Maybe because I've seen them. I don't know. Um, and nobody's, there's neighbors standing there, but nobody will come and help me. Finally, somebody does. I'm like standing there begging them to come to help me just get my, he's not in there. I just need to get my kids out. Like that, I just, the window, it's the bathroom. Somebody finally comes and I'm calling to my three-year-old to come to me. And, um, she won't because I'm bloody. So I jump back in. And by the time I can like put her out the window that my health is gone. So I set her on the cold, you know, grass and I jump back in, get my one-year-old jump back out. And I run them over to my neighbor's house. And she finally opens the door at that point. Um, and I throw them out. So at, at the point where I was in the bedroom with the baby and Chelsea and Kim were out. So I didn't know what was happening other than I was keeping that door shut and not letting him come in. So all of a sudden I felt somebody pushing on the door trying to get in. And I, in my mind, thought it was him, was sure it was him, and was not opening that door. And I kept that door shut. And later, months later, I realized or found out that it had been Kim that was trying to get in. And that was a really hard issue for me to reconcile that I had kept her out of that room although I also know that had I let her in that room he probably would have come in after her into that room and got who knows probably killed all three of us or finished us off um but at the time when it was happening I thought it was him and I was not opening that door so what happened at that point, we believe Chelsea at this time was getting her kids out the window. I was in that room keeping that door shut and Kim ended up trapped with he, he had come back in the house and she was kind of trapped yeah. and they ended up, the, the both of them ended up in my room, my bedroom, which was across the hall from where I was. So I could hear what was going on and I heard heard Kim say mommy 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 I can't breathe I can't breathe I'm dying and I knew that she had probably sustained a lethal injury to her heart or lungs and that she was bleeding internally and couldn't breathe and I wanted to go to her I wanted to go help her I wanted to go be by her side so I tried to stand up but my my kneecap was gone. So when I stood up, my leg literally came out of my body. 
and I, of course, fell back down to the floor, bloodshot everywhere. And that was the first time I thought to myself, I'm going to die here. I'm going to bleed to death in this room. And I mustered up the strength to say, Evan, stop. The police are on the way. I think I could hear sirens in the background at that point. So I just assumed maybe police were coming. I don't know why I said that, but I must have heard, heard the sirens. And I tried to, I wanted to say something to Kim and I couldn't. And I thought, why can't I speak? And I didn't realize I was really bleeding to death. And so I just didn't have the energy to even say anything else or do anything else. And at that point, the police broke into the house. Chelsea, were you there when the police? Yeah, so that was right when I handed my kids off to my neighbors. Um, Right when I turned around to go back, because I was ready to go back and find my sister, because I knew my kids were safe. Um, The first responder was there and um jumped out of his vehicle and i said go he's killing her go inside break the door down it's locked you have to break it down go he's killing her and he did and within seconds i hear six gunshots go off um and i just collapse on my on my neighbor's front porch and at the same time ambulance and everybody else shows up so when i heard the police come in i heard them come in the door and there was a, a brief moment where I don't think they knew where to go. It was a kind of a chaotic scene there. And so I yelled, help, help. And they ran back, saw what was going on, and just they just shot him. They just shot him dead, which was good. And I heard the shot. I stayed there. I heard the police say, he's dead. Start CPR on her, which meant on Kim. And that's when I opened the door and they saw me and they got a tourniquet on me and they, they proceeded to get me to the hospital. He asked, is there anyone else in the room with you? And I said, just the baby. And he said, the baby. And they grabbed Donovan. And Donovan was laying butt naked on the, yeah. butt on the bed right there, which was like a mat, you know, double mattress on the floor, not on the frame or anything. He just like was laying there I was in mid-change when everything happened so and he was happy as he was just happy kicking his little legs and And I I maybe because of you know the good thing about kids is they sort of don't have this they can't interpret what's going on around them kids that age so maybe that helped protect him and not experience some of that that but I mean I can't what you just described is awful. I can't even imagine myself in that situation. It sounds like something out of a out of a horror movie. How long was it? Sounds like an, it might have been an eternity for you. How how long an ordeal was this for you? It was only like ten minutes. It was very short. It happened really, really, really quick. Maybe fifteen. The the cops said they were they arrived at our house within three to five minutes of receiving the call which would have been probably three to five minutes into the situation because it didn't take long for me to run out and start. It was like right in the middle or the beginning. So, yeah, it was, it only lasted 10 to 15 minutes total. This all happened. Uh, uh, and was Kim dead at the scene? So I thought she was. Um, when, when I opened the door, I saw her laying there with her eyes closed. I didn't see any blood on her. I didn't see any knife in her head. I just saw Kim looking like she was asleep and they they were picking her up. I think they were taking her out to the other room to start CPR on her. But so I thought she was dead at that point. So when they got me out on the stretcher and they had Chelsea on a stretcher, we were going to separate ambulances and I told Chelsea, she's dead. Kim's dead. And I said, no, because I didn't, I, I didn't know. I didn't want her to think everything was okay and then find out later Kim died. So I just told her. But later we did find out that Kim was still alive at that point. In fact, Evan died before she did. And that she stayed alive for just a few more minutes. And she asked if her baby was okay and yeah. then she died. Oh, I, I mean, yeah, I don't even know how to, to follow up that what you just told me. It's 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 awful. What's going through your mind? I mean, you mentioned sort of being injured, but not realizing how badly you were injured. Is it like shock? Is it what's going through your minds while this is going on? Yeah, that's 
that's really weird. And that was really hard for us to reconcile. Like, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we do that? But at the time that it's happening, you don't, you're not thinking clearly. First of all, we were both hit in the head right off the bat. So we were both had a head injury. Almost the exact same spot. Yeah. And then, um, but just in the confusion of the situation, you, you just go on instinct. I don't remember thinking, I'm going to go grab his leg so he can't. That's just what I did. Yeah. I didn't think to do. Um, so it is kind of a shock and, and almost. You, you really can't say what you'll do in that situation. You really don't know. And and then you've got to deal with your, your injuries. Not only are you hurt and, and going to the hospital, but then you find out Kim's been killed. I mean, how how do you handle that on top of what you're already handling your injuries? And well, I already knew she was, when she told me she was dying and she couldn't breathe, I knew she was dying. And I, I just knew. So I don't know if it was instinctually. I was hoping maybe they could revive her, but I knew she was gone. So by the time I even got in the ambulance, I already knew. So there was nobody that came and told us. We just, we, we knew. We knew, but it was still, yeah, that grieving process of, it's not just grieving the loss of our loved one. It, and it's not just the trauma of having your home invaded to and attacked and, you know, it's both on top of each other. Plus now there's this baby, you know, who we know where he's going, but he's automatically in the system because he's an orphan. So we have to go, you know, and support our family through that process which was a long process and it was very strenuous and challenging um, to have that all. It was a very complex trauma. The aftermath after you're recovering and how long were you both were you admitted to the hospital for any length of time? Yeah, we both went to surgery. Chelsea was a little less injured than I was. So she was out. I was in the hospital for two weeks solid. I was out within a few days or a week, but yeah. So I, I was pretty bad. I had to get blood transfusions and stuff. I had lost quite a bit of blood. I was pretty much on the verge of death at the time. Yeah. So you've, you're you dealing with your injuries. You, you get out of the hospital, but you still got this aftermath of all this trauma that you endured. Kim's well, gone. Um, how did you get through that time period? I mean, what, what happens during that time well, period? We couldn't even go back to our house because... It was a disaster cleanup yeah. situation. That was another complex. So, and Chelsea and Hector had just bought this house that they live in, just bought Weeks. it. Like, hadn't even made their first house payment yet. But we'd, we'd lived, lived there, there for two years already renting, and then they decided to buy it. So then this happened. So then they had to make the choice of, we just bought this house. Are we going to keep it, you know? But um, we couldn't go back to it right away anyway because they had to do all this cleanup and crime scene stuff. So heck, they decided they would keep the house and remodel it some so that it would kind of look and be a kind of a new fresh house. But it is the same house. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our thoughts on that were, you know, we'd lived there two years. We have wonderful memories with Kim there. She was there a lot. I mean, she was there we were the like time. her second home, you know. Um, anyways, and so we were, it was just. We wanted to heal the home, heal the space. We couldn't see ourselves just leaving it like that. It was, my husband luckily is fortunate to be blessed with the ability to um, build a home from ground up. So he, I mean, he restructured, he, he tore down walls to change the way it felt. He put in windows to add different lighting. He took out that glass door he took the glass door out and replaced that with a big you know so made it modified it in a way that we felt safe going back and that we felt you know that there even was some healing through that process so we lived at a airbnb for a, a month or so yeah we were in and out we actually rented a home for a few months we didn't get back into our home until six months to the day that it happened so it sounds like you didn't want this monster to chase you out of your home that you loved, that you had good That's memories right. of. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's no trial here. He's dead. He's gone. Right. Um, yeah. Do you feel like you've been robbed not only of Kim and your lives, but of not knowing the answers about why he did this or any of that kind of stuff? No, I'm glad we didn't have to face a trial. And I, even 
though I knew he was dead right after the, right after I got out of the hospital, I kept thinking there was, he was coming around the corner with his machete and I kept just feeling like I was seeing him come for me. And so I'd have to remind myself, no, he's dead. So I think it would have been really hard for me if he hadn't been dead. Because yeah. I would have felt like he was coming back for us all the time. I would have felt that. Yeah. And that's got to be a, a helpless feeling. Yeah. I mean, and for me, it's, um, it's not really like the answers of why he did this and what, you know, would have been or all of those things because it, it's happened and we're, you know, we, we're moving on the best we can and, and trying to integrate this experience in creating something that is good out of this. Um, we, we really, since that point, so amidst all of the, the healing, the renovations, the adoption, the, you know, physical, um, we decided to create a cause out of her name to, to create a legacy so that her name and her energy, her spirit would never be forgotten. Kimberly loved festivals. We, as a child, I took her to this one festival they had in our area every year. And she loved, loved, loved festivals. She would go to any and all festivals she could. So we decided, um, because there were so many people that wanted to come to her funeral and so many people in our community that supported us and supported her. Um, we could, we couldn't have an open funeral because there was too many people like it just wouldn't fit. So we decided to have what we now call Kim fest and what, what we decided to call Kim fest in her honor because she loved festivals. So the day after her funeral, we rented a venue and we had this huge celebration of life which we call yeah. Kim Fest. We opened it to the community. 300 people showed up. Um, we had vendors there that were like um, volunteer, either they were mental health prevention or suicide. We had therapy dogs come. We had um, some local like artists come and donate their time to just share in the day. And we called it a celebration of life and love. And um, it was really beautiful. And what we didn't touch on was the day when this happened, um, it made headlines across the United States. Kim's story was featured on so many different, um, news outlets in, there was like Seattle and Texas. And I mean, it was amazing. And our community in general, the Nampa community really, and Boise Treasure Valley, um, really stepped up to, embrace us and when we got so many devo- uh, d- donations for donovan donations for donovan we had physical and monetary and then with kim fest we just put out a call of what we wanted to happen for her celebration and memorial and it just everybody together. came together my whole family you know stepped in it was just amazing so we decided to do this every year and since then even last year during the covid shutdowns we had a virtual one but we are having a kim fest every year we did one in her, hers uh, the, the year she died and then the next year was 2019 the next year we had to have a virtual 2020, 2020. but this year we're having a, another one that's going to be um socially distant friendly drive-through. so you can drive through it or you can get out depending on what people want and we are planning on doing this every year for the rest of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, and and what we've adapted from Kim's name is kind of the premise around Kim Fest and our whole movement and our cause is Kind Your Mind. Her, her name was spelled. Um, her name was spelled K Y M. So Kimberly K Y M B E R L E E. Um, she had a unique spelling, but. I just was one day I was thinking, how do we make her name into something and what would be a cool acronym? How could I, you know, and kind your mind came up and I put it out there and it just really clicked and everybody was like, Oh my gosh, that's perfect. You know, that is our motto. How do you kind your mind? How do you shift away from this judgment, this blame and shame and, you know, violence and and everything and trauma and move into a, a kindness and compassion? How do you accept yourself and love and, and try to, you know, versus kind in your mind, move into nonviolence and, you know, a way of being. And so, yeah, it starts with kindness and your mindset and mindfulness and all that stuff. So that is our, our movement. <laughs> well, it sounds like you really decided to focus on uh, Kim's memory and her life, not the way she died. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 
You talked a little bit earlier about the injuries that you sustained and injuries can heal. You can, you can get better over time, but what about the, the emotional scars, the, the mental uh, stuff that comes with that? Have you had help for, for anything uh, dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress or anything along those lines? Well, we all went to counseling for a time and for probably the first couple of years, we went to some counseling and, you know, we've just muddled through it. It, it. It's a horrible thing. Grief is awful. No matter how your loved one dies, it, it doesn't matter. It's still horrible on a person and it's hard and it takes a long time and you'll never forget your loved one and you'll never stop missing them. Um, but life does continue and you really, you have to be in, present in your life. We had we just happened to have the three little ones that were there that day. Plus then late another year later, Chelsea had a baby, another baby. So we have these four little children that they don't understand at all. They need to be happy. They still need to have Christmas and Easter and all the fun stuff and Halloween that go, you know, so we had to rise up out of our mire of sadness and grief and live again for these babies. Yeah. And, and you talk about healing and what we've thought, you know, it's, we've done counseling, we've done those things. And, and really, like my mom said, it's being present and really taking the opportunity to be grateful for what we do have. And we feel grateful every day to just be here. Um, there, you know, so many different ways that could have turned out where we wouldn't be here and our babies wouldn't be here and stuff. So it's, um, it's that being present, being mindful, and then taking that mentality that we're putting out there of, of being kind and really being gracious with ourselves and compassionate for our process because we've gone through this, you know, and in spite of what we've gone through to, we even want to reach out to people that might have anger management issues and, and to be in a situation where they are the abuser. We, we would like to help those people too. Like it, it's not just for victims. It's for everyone. Well, and yeah. you mentioned earlier that, you didn't know what to do in a situation like this where you just go rescue your loved one, bring them to your home and, and okay. hope that's enough. What have you learned that, uh, you know, to maybe if you could go back in time, what things would you have d done differently? Or what if someone in a similar situation, what are s some advice that you might be able to give them uh, if they find themselves in a situation where they're trying to protect a loved one and they think it's enough to, to just bring them to s some place and get them out of that atmosphere? For me, it's just being cautious and being aware, maybe having some um, strategic, you know, Escape plan. escape plan in in a way I mean I know in, in Kim's case it was really just quick it was like okay let's get you out let's do this but in my scenario you know had I known this that it's dangerous and all this that he could be seeking retaliation um I would have grabbed my phone immediately and just called somebody versus go wake her up and let and try to have them have a talk and all that stuff it would have been an immediate red flag that he's right. here unannounced that's not right because you know this is real and he could be dangerous I don't know him in that way whatever like just knowing that you know and it's not it wasn't even him as a person but he was so in, enraged at that time he was hopeless this was a suicide mission for him he his yeah. his Love of his life took his baby away. They had this life plan together that obviously wasn't going to work out. He probably felt like he screwed it up and felt guilty maybe and ashamed that that came to that and was going to go and take his own life, but he was going to take her with him because that's all he ever knew. And they, they were so, you know, her and the baby. They, he wanted them and she wanted, they wanted each other so bad. It just wasn't, you know, so that's what we feel happened that he was this, this hurt and for me and because I so I'm the visionary behind Kim Fest um, my family supports me 100% and 100% is is there um, to give me guidance and, and everything else but you know it was, it was kind of my idea like let's do a festival Kim would like that yeah everybody yes for sure we did it well we can't just have a festival every year we need an organization behind it because it's not just a festival that we want to have we want to have support for people year-round we want to be able to increase the awareness and access to these resources and this knowledge 
So we need that. So I founded this organization for you network, family oriented resources for the young, old and underserved, a network of community resources um, that works to reduce violence and heal trauma. So that is network.com. <laughs> no, it's not actually. <laughs> it's for it will be www.foryounetwork.org. It's coming soon this summer. We plan to launch our website, but we do have um kimfest.com up right now that will tell you all about the festival and give you access to donate or to sign up or be a, re- a vendor sponsor or anything like that. Um, but for now, um, what I was saying was that I knew that we needed an organization behind this. Um, and then the, the kind your mind movement, it all, everybody is, is seeking a way to connect and to find empathy and to find connect, you know, compassion with each other and to find this sort of sense of community that I, I felt like, um, so since then we're, we're moving in the direction of having this organization that has a physical location that we can offer these sort of support groups. It's a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit. It's a IRS, you know, registered 501c3, uh, we're all legitimate. We're seeking a location at this point to be able to house our operations. We host a trauma support group. We've been doing that online for the last couple of years. We started in person um, at public locations. We do seminars on grief and trauma, and we connect people in our community to resources. So, um, and KimFest is our main event. KimFest is our family reunion. It's our celebration of life that brings these resources to the people. It brings everything in one area that allows people the opportunity to network and connect with um, the life-saving services that are out there that are readily available, but people do not know how to access them. And becoming, you know, being aware of them is one thing and then and being able to engage in them is another. And we want to be able to host that. So so Kim Fest is a way to do that every single year. <laughs> well, it's, it's really powerful when someone goes through this kind of worst experience you're ever going to go through and then you come out the other side and channel it into something good that will help other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the intention. And, and we want to promote this healing on a whole body level of, you know, it's, it's the mental and emotional, it's the physical and it's the spiritual, it's all connected. And how do you find, how do we help you find the resources that are best suited for you and the way that you want to heal? And cause it's different for everybody. It is not a one size fits all, you know, um, what works for others like counseling and talk therapy and, you know, that sort of thing doesn't work for others. And there's, um, sound therapy, there's, um, you know, acupressure, there's massage therapy, there's, um, you know, hypnotherapy, there's other things that, that work, um, that are integrative. And that's what we're really trying to promote is find what works for you and seek out the help that you need and kind your mind. Yeah. That's all, all good stuff. If, if you can help someone, yeah. uh, prevent something like this or get help with something they're dealing with, with like this. Um, and you've, Again, you've gone through hell. Everything you described, this sounds like the worst situation that anyone would want to go through. But how are the the kids doing now? Do they have memories of that day? Are they resilient enough that they've sort of not, you know, realized what happened that day? The oldest one was three. And she does have memories. Um she remembers that day and we talk about it semi-frequently. She'll bring it up and ask, you know, where did you go when you left? And what were you screaming about? And, you know, it was scary. And the bad man came, it was right after it was the bad man came and hurt you guys. And why did that happen? You know, it was, and we had to explain, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to explain to somebody, um, especially the child whose father, you know, did this, that it was a bad decision on his part that people make these horrible mistakes. And that, um, you know, be just because he did that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that that, you know, affects you. And like, it's, and it's hard when they're so little that they don't understand. So we'll adjust. So we're, we're trying to just take it as it comes as far as his age and what's appropriate for him to understand. Of course, 
he understands that there's a Kim. He has a mommy angel in heaven. We go and see her at the cemetery. I got a book about death that's uh, for kids, you know, so they, I went through that with them just this, on this last anniversary um, last month. We had the third anniversary, and I went through this book of death with them so they could understand why we go to the cemetery and what happens when things die and people die. So we just kind of explain a little parts of it at a time as they grow and as they are, you know, their age identifies with what they need to know. But the three-year-old, my oldest, um, she went through a series of like play therapy and specific um, trauma therapy for kids who have witnessed domestic violence and that sort of thing through a local center. And um, this was kind of family oriented where I would be involved in the, in the sessions and stuff. And I think, um, just giving her outlets to be able to talk about it. And when she does bring it up, be able to, you know, and with all of them now, now that they're all getting older and what she knows is going to be what they know and all that. I mean, it's just answering their questions in a simple way that we feel like they can understand, but maybe not leading them on into asking more, letting them be the guide of the conversation is really what we focus on. And, if they have curiosities, we'll be able to, you know, help answer those as truthfully as possible because we do believe that truth is, is the way to go. Um, ultimately, they're going to need to know what really happened, and that's fine. It's just a matter of what they can, they can process and how we can help protect them at least partially through the process. Well, it sounds like everyone then is getting, has gotten help and is, coping with things in their own way and and moving along as as well as they can after something like this is donovan still in in the home yes yeah uh, so that's i'm sure that's what kim would want my oldest daughter adopted donovan so um my oldest daughter was 13 when kim was born so kim was like her own little baby too so she just naturally took over i mean that was just her first instinct upon hearing that Kim had died was that she was going to take Donovan and be his mother now. So that's, and that was all agreed upon through all the siblings. I mean, that was unanimous through all of us. Um, Uh Well, it sounds like you've got a a wonderful loving family and a great support system for everyone to get through this. And um, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing something so personal and tragic with us. It's, um, it's, that's one of the toughest stories I've ever heard. And, um, you know, for you getting through it and being as strong as you are, um, you know, I just want to say thank you for, for sharing what you could with us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. We appreciate any, I mean, we kind of, our story is our story. I mean, we utilize it as we can help anybody else. That's the great. Awesome. Yeah. Hopefully someone out there listening might have something that they're going through and your words might be able to help them. So if if that's the case, and that's, that's a great thing. Thank you again for joining me for this very moving episode of the murder of my family. Once again, if you or someone, you know, is in danger due to domestic violence, you can call the national domestic violence hotline at 800-799-SAFE. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. I'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me again. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. <laughs>